He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be with you as we gather together this morning around God's living word. I don't know about you, but I've always been interested in the connection between where things happen and what happens. I have this romantic picture in my mind that all of those wonderful, great works of art and literature must have been created in extraordinary places. That somehow where it happened is intimately connected to what happened, to what was produced, to the creative outcome that Mozart must have written his symphony surely in some amazing, beautiful, gilded palace. That Matisse and Monet, as they painted, must have been surrounded by beautiful objects, or at least standing out in some field of gold on some perfect summer day. That the most finely wrought literature we have flowed forth onto the page from a beautiful fountain pen in some gorgeous salon, as the author sipped coffee from fine bone china. It's a delusion, of course, I understand that. Here's an image of Matisse as he made his famous paper cutouts. Here's the studio at Givenay that Monet painted his extraordinary exuberant water lily paintings. Here's the inconceivably tiny desk at which Jane Austen penned Pride and Prejudice and Emma. And this is the noisy cafe where J.K. Rowling wrote the first of the Harry Potter books. And here's the ugly backyard shed where Roald Dahl wrote his imaginative and funny books that have delighted so many children over so many years. What all of these places have in common is that they're just ordinary places full of ordinary things. They look like places we've been, or perhaps they even look like parts of our lives and parts of our homes. There is absolutely nothing special about any of these places. And yet, in each of these places, something extraordinary was brought into being. And what was brought into being, of course, had nothing to do with the location, but everything to do with the person who created it. And that's one of the reasons why this letter from Paul to the Philippians is so incredibly wonderful. Because when you understand where Paul wrote it, you can't help but marvel. And not only what Paul wrote, but the kind of person that Paul must have been to have produced this letter in the place that he did. Because Paul isn't writing this letter for some courtyard surrounded by the smell of beautiful roses as he sipped a cup of tea. He's actually doing hard time in a Roman prison. And prisons back then weren't what they are today. Prisons were really dungeons, consisting of a few underground cells known for their darkness and for their stench and for their capacity to spread disease. 
where all of the prisoners were held in one room with inadequate sanitation, with inadequate ventilation, and no beds to lie in. They were literally chained to the floor and to the wall, and the only food that they received was the food and drink that was bought to them by family and friends. That's what kept them alive. This is an image of Carcer Talanium, Rome's only prison during the first century where both at one point Peter and Paul were held. It's from this kind of hellhole that Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, which emerges in a blaze of thanksgiving and joy. I mean, honestly, how could Paul maintain such extraordinary joy in a place like that? It's hard to imagine being joyful at all, stuck in that kind of a hellhole. Frankly, it's hard to imagine praying for other people, let alone some beautiful, joyful prayer like Paul prays. I've got to say that if I was in this, that situation, my prayer mostly would have consisted of me screaming at God to get me out of here as quickly as possible. But not Paul. Here in this prayer of thanksgiving at the beginning of Philippians in chapter 1, he writes this, I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm confident that this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. For it is right for me to think this way about you, because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel." For God is my witness for how I long for all of you to be filled with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best so that in the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and the praise of God. Wow, what a prayer. Disconnection between this joyful prayer of thanksgiving as Paul prays it convinces me that Paul really must know a thing or two about joy. I think for most of us, we treat joy like it's a kind of bank account that each day we make deposits into our joy bank account, like laughter and love and friendship and hobbies and interests and family and satisfaction at work and a really good coffee and whatever else it is that brings us that joyous feeling. And we store these things up and we bask in the afterglow. And each day too, we make withdrawals from our joy bank account, it's our worries, it's conflict, it's anger, it's sadness, it's loneliness, it's stress and pressures at work and in our family. And my goodness, it's that person who cannot reverse park. All of these things tax our sense of joy. And some days I think we feel like we're rich, like our joy bank account has a bank balance of around $50 million and it's never going to end. And other times we feel like we're in the red, like we'll never ever feel a sense of joy again. And what's baffling about Paul is that it isn't like that for him. 
He doesn't even really seem to have a joy bank account because his joy isn't connected to his external circumstances at all. From almost the first word of this letter to the church at Philippi, Paul begins to point us to the source of his extraordinary joy, the seeds of which I think are in this thanksgiving prayer. See, the first thing I want to draw your attention to this morning is the focus of Paul's prayer that comes to us in verse 9. That their love, that your love, may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight. The love that Paul wants the Philippians to have isn't a sentimental kind of love. It's not about warm feelings and love heart emojis. He is praying that we will be filled with a robust and a mature love, a love that's based on knowledge, a love that's based on a full understanding of reality a love that leverages this knowledge, this understanding, to produce deep and profound insight. This is Paul's prayer for the Philippians, that they would possess a love so strong it becomes a foundation for living that produces a harvest of righteousness, he says. Which is a wonderful corrective for those of us that are inclined to forget that righteous living comes out of living a life of love, not the other way around. We don't love in order to be righteous. Righteousness isn't the goal. It's the outcome, the byproduct, the result of living a life of deep and profound love. When we allow love to be the factor that determines and guides our pathway and our actions, this life of love renders us pure and blameless. Because neither right doctrine or right belief has that power. Only our capacity to live a life overflowing with a robust and deep, insightful and mature love does. And this is the life that Paul prays the Philippians and us will pursue with all our hearts. I heard a story this week that I think begins to point to this, to this kind of love that Paul invites us to take up. In 2015, Harley, uh, Haley and Harrison were newlyweds. They were a young Christian couple in the US in their early 20s. They'd been married just a year, quite soon after they graduated for college, and they went up to New York State for a friend's wedding. While they were there, Harrison went on a ride on a four-wheel bike with a bunch of his mates. And on that ride, he suffered a terrible, catastrophic, horrific accident in which he received a profound brain and spinal injury. Harrison survived the brain surgery, but his life was dramatically changed cognitively and physically. And Haley. Well, she was faced with a completely different love story than the one that she had imagined. A marital future where she would be Harrison's caregiver and nurse. 22 years old, 12 months of marriage, a catastrophic accident. It's hard to imagine. But through it all, Haley, with full knowledge 
of what her and Harrison's life would now be on never left his side. And it's six years since the accident, and Haley and Harrison are still married. They live in Haley's parents' home, and she is Harrison's primary caregiver and biggest advocate. When I look back on my own life, on that moment when I made my vows to Christopher on our wedding day all of those years ago, there is now one thing that's clear to me. Yes, I was overflowing with love. But this love was fresh, it was new, and it was only centimetres deep. I had love, but I lacked the knowledge and the full insight that only a deep confrontation with reality can bring. You see, it's only through facing the reality of loving one another when we're not our best selves, and when life deals both its ordinary and its extraordinary blows, that our love has deepened and grown. And this is the kind of love that Paul wants to overflow in our lives, a love with passion and depth, but with its eyes wide open to the realities of life, full of the kind of hard insights that only come through challenge and change and suffering. What amazes me about Paul's Thanksgiving prayer is that it contains a kind of internal logic if you look closely. Within the prayer are three moments where Paul invites the Philippians to connect with, to encourage them, to equip them to be able to live this life of love he wants them to have. Paul reminds them of their past, he addresses their present, and he invites them to consider their future. And this is an invitation I want you to hear this morning. Paul invites you to reconnect with your past, you see, the past is the success that we build upon to sustain us in the present and to enable us to imagine the future. All of the strengths and the resources that we have developed, uh, we can draw upon from our past to support us. The stories that tell us who we are, that remind us where we came from, the history of a God who has been with us, the reality of God's faithful presence over time in many places in days gone by. Look back, Paul says, and remember these things, not because they were perfect, but because they are part of you. All of the discoveries and each of the learnings has brought you to this moment and made you who they are. This profound story of grace and faith in your life, grasp it, remember it, take hold of it. This God who has never left you and forsaken you. This is the road that you've travelled. This is the road that has led you to this moment. Remember how far you've come and be encouraged. Secondly, Paul invites us into this present moment where he says, my heart is filled with compassion for you. Paul's heart is filled with compassion because this, is, this present moment is the place we live. And here, of course, there is beauty and there is wonder, but there is also difficulty and challenge and trial and suffering. 
And in this present moment, as we face all of those things, Paul's heart of compassion is turned towards us because he understands the everyday wrestles of our present human struggle. You see, this present moment is the crucible of life. It is the crucible of life in which our love is tested and refined and purified by the everyday challenges of being a human person in a broken world. But this crucible of life is also the place in which God's grace meets us. Where in the precise moment of coming to the end of ourselves and our own resources, we meet and experience the grace of God. And lastly, Paul orients us to the future. He invites us to lift up our eyes to the coming day of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the distinctive things about the Christian faith is the future hope we long for, that the creator God who we love is both a beginner and a finisher and that God will bring completion to this work that God has begun in us, as Alicia has reminded us this morning. And the nature of this hope isn't that we're finally going to reach some kind of state of perfection in and of our own making. Instead of being condemned to a future we've got to get right, we get freed by faith into a hope that isn't reliant on us at all. A hope that's not founded on what we can do, but on what God can do as God brings to completion God's work in the world. The day will come when all will be well. As God's love wells up and flows out and flows forth in overwhelming force over everything, restoring all things and all people renewing everything that has been broken, redeeming all that has been lost. It's no wonder, I think, that from this point of view, as Paul sits in prison, he can hold these three moments, these three perspectives, these three viewpoints in his mind and can experience deep and abiding joy. And what a wonderful gift he offers us this morning. Because sometimes... We kind of get stuck, don't we? We get stuck ruminating about the past, about things that we can't change. Sometimes we get overwhelmed in the present, wrestling with circumstances and issues that leave us reeling and feeling lost and in despair. And at other times we get taken up with fantasies about the future hoping that in some way we can control it and influence it so things will turn out exactly the way we want. And each of these postures bracket out joy and overwhelm our love with fear. There is no joy in futile attempts at having a better past. There is no joy to be found in the present when we're over-focused and overwhelmed by the things in front of us to the extent that we can't even see past them. There is no joy in the burden of a future that we have to try and make turn out right. So through this Thanksgiving prayer in Philippians, Paul is offering us a perspective 
that invites us into the joy he knows and that he longs for us to know as well. And he's encouraging all of us caught up in the crucible of life that is this present moment, that all of these resources are available to us, that a God who begun a good work in us will bring it to completion, and that the harvest of this present moment is a life of love overflowing with knowledge and full of insight. And my prayer is that you might walk in this way of love, that you might take up this way of love and commit yourself to it all the days of your life. May you hold these three moments in your heart this morning, all that God has been and done in your life in the past, the gifts of this present moment, both the joy and the challenges that will refine and shape you, and the future, the future of God's inevitable love poured out for you and the world. Friends, as the band comes up to the stage this morning, let's just take a moment to listen to the work of the Spirit in our own lives. As you sit here this morning in the crucible of life, I wonder what it is God's saying to you this morning. What riches from your past, what stories is God bringing to mind that he invites you to reconnect with as a resource for this present moment? What challenges are you facing in your life that God is seeking to sustain you in and to grow you through? To help you to build the kind of person, the perseverance that brings character that draws you to be more like Jesus. And for those of you that are experiencing despair and a sense of listlessness and hopelessness, may you see this morning the future that is coming towards you. God is coming towards you this morning to bring hope and healing and restoration. What is it that the Spirit's saying to you this morning? Let's just take a moment. Jesus, you stand amongst us this morning, wherever we are. And you are the living word. You are the logos of God. You hold all things in your hands. And God, we invite you to hold us in your hands this morning. To take these tender lives. And to breathe your breath of grace and peace into our hearts again this morning. God, we long for wholeness, for a perspective that allows us to step out of ourselves and, and to see our lives as they truly are. May you confront us again, Jesus, with the reality of your sacrifice, of your forgiveness, 
of your mercy and your grace. As we receive it all as a gift again, God, we say thank you. Thank you for the riches of this faith that we've received. Thank you for the peace we have through you. Thank you for the love that transforms our lives. Bring your knowledge and your wisdom, God, to our love so it might be a foundation for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.